part of what's changed in the region, there's a lot of focus on Chinese bullying. I think that's the best word for it in the South China Sea. And the Chinese got more and more aggressive just before I became ambassador. And, and I think this is very important to understand. The Vietnamese have fought 22 wars against China. President Biden's visit to Hanoi in September marked a shift in U.S.-Vietnam relations, elevating their status to a comprehensive strategic partnership, a status that Vietnam already had with China and Russia. And while a historic turn in ties between the two countries, what does Vietnam's hedging mean for their evolving role in the Indo-Pacific? Already, Vietnam was doing more military-to-military engagements with us than with any other country. What prompted this upgrade in relations? How might Vietnam's stance influence the complex power balance among the United States, Vietnam, and China? And what could this all mean for the Indo-Pacific's stability in the long run? This is Global Insights by Network 2020. Joining us today is former ambassador to Vietnam, Ted Osius, author of Nothing is Impossible, America's Reconciliation with Vietnam. We know from our own civil war that reconciliation takes a long time. And every step that shows respect and that allows people to be treated with dignity is important in that process. Moderating the discussion is Courtney Doggart, president of Network 2020. If we could just start off where I usually like to start, which is just trying to get a general scene setter. Um, obviously, it's hard to go into all of the history in such a short time. But if you could just give um, give us all a sense from from your perspective, what are some of the you know key milestones in the evolution of diplomatic relations between the U.S. and Vietnam? Um, you know, what, what are some of those challenges and shifts um, that have ultimately led to this very um, recent upgrade in status to a comprehensive st strategic partnership. Okay, thanks, Courtney. Um, well, I guess I'd start when Elizabeth Sherrier was an FSO in the in the mid 90s. And the decision was made to normalize diplomatic relations with Vietnam. And it was a, a complicated decision politically, there were still it was the era uh, in which most Republicans did not want it was a it was a uh, it was very difficult if you were Republican in particular to be in favor of normal diplomatic relations. But uh, John McCain, who'd been a prisoner of war for a long period of time in the Hanoi Hilton, really took the reins and he was vilified by his party, but he did it anyway. And he and John Kerry and other vets provided cover for Bill Clinton, who was not a vet famously had not served, um, but they made it possible for Clinton to normalize diplomatic relations. And then I guess I would fast forward to 2001, uh, Pete Peterson, also a former POW, a vet, first U.S. ambassador to Vietnam, had uh, completed negotiations on a bilateral trade agreement. And that was key in the uh, movement of the relationship was because what Vietnam wanted was to prosper. And we were the key, opening uh, up 
economic and commercial ties with the United States was key for Vietnam. And then moving forward again, 2007, that was when Vietnam joined the World Trade Organization. And that was with a lot of support from the United States, including technical support. In fact, all the work that had gone into the bilateral trade agreement helped the Vietnamese get ready for WTO membership. And by the following year, 2008, uh, foreign direct investment in Vietnam really took off. Uh, and uh, so I guess then move forward a little further, uh, 20, 000, uh, 2013, uh, the, the president of Vietnam, Trung Tan Sang, came to Washington and sat down with uh, President Obama, and they declared a comprehensive partnership uh, between the two nations. And that was kind of where I started returning uh, to Vietnam. I was able to go out the following year as the sixth U.S. ambassador to Vietnam. And I, the most consequential thing I did in my time in Vietnam was facilitate a visit by uh, General Secretary Nguyen Phu Trong uh, to Washington, to the Oval Office in, in uh, July 2015. And that really allowed things to take off. Once we had, once the uh, President Obama had said, uh, we will not, we, we respect different political systems, which was code for we're not going to try to overthrow your government. Uh, the, the Vietnamese government felt very comfortable in developing relations with us across all spheres, across all areas of engagement. Uh, and then I guess one more, uh, one more milestone that's probably worth mentioning is that in 2018, the first U.S. aircraft carrier since the war uh, visit, uh, stopped in Vietnam in, in Da Nang. It was actually the first of three visits by aircraft carriers uh, over the next uh, two, four, five years. And I think that was also pretty significant. And then 2023, uh, double upgrade. We, we moved from being a comprehensive partnership to a comprehensive strategic partnership, skipping the middle run, which is a strategic partnership, uh, moving uh, to so that the United States was with a very small group of countries that have a comprehensive strategic partnership with Vietnam, uh, just the uh, US, China, India, uh, South Korea and Japan and us. So those, I'd say that's probably, that's a snapshot of what happened uh, over the last 30 years that brought the two countries together. Terrific. Thank you. And I know any, you know, there's so much that, that one can zoom in on within, within those different decades, but um, where I would like to zoom for the next question is, uh, is this this second rung up on the comprehensive strategic partnership? So, um, how do you interpret the significance of this elevation of relationship, this jumping of two rungs, and um, obviously the key diplomatic outcome of um, President Biden's visit to Vietnam is this relationship? But you know, how how do you see this fitting into the overall bilateral relationship? Well, first of all, it is a big deal. It, uh, the president bypassed the ASEAN summit in Jakarta and went to Hanoi for this, uh, this what I call a double upgrade in the relationship. Uh, but let me start first with what was already in place, 
before this was declared. Already, Vietnam was doing more military military to military engagements uh, with us than with any other country. They'd already fully engaged our Coast Guard, our our Navy, and uh, we had already developed what I would say was a strategic relationship. And then um, we'd also really seen remarkable progress in the economic relationship. When I first went there almost 30 years ago, we had about $800,000 a year in two-way trade, near zero, pretty near zero in, in trade terms. And last year, $138 billion in two-way trade. So Vietnam went from zero to our eighth largest trading partner in a remarkably short period of time. So dramatic transformation of the economic relationship. And then from the moment that uh, Nguyen Phu Chau and the general secretary came to the White House in 2015, we had developed really robust engagements on health, uh, global health challenges, um, not just what our two countries faced, but what the world faced, SARS, COVID, HIV, uh, uh, collaboration on the environment, on science and technology, tremendous amount of uh, collaboration in the field of education. And, you know, I think Vietnam is the fifth largest supplier of foreign students to the United States. And it's not the fifth largest country. It's, you know, it's coming after uh, China and then Canada, which has a very long border with us. Um, so those were elements were already in place. But then uh, I think what's been added as a result of this uh, comprehensive st strategic partnership is Vietnam is now considered a trusted trade partner. And that matters when you're worried about uh, making, making chips, for example, making semiconductors. So Vietnam is now part of a, a high-tech supply chain system uh, that involves the United States. That's, that's a, a big difference. There's a commitment on the part of the United States to uh, help boost innovation in Vietnam. And that means upskilling and uh, worker training. Uh, and in fact, there was a Vietnam US in Innovation and Investment Summit uh, when the president visited. And I think that's the kind of new growing area of the relationship. And I think it's very significant. Uh, and then what's been ongoing throughout all of this time is a complex reconciliation process, not just reconciliation between two governments, but reconciliation between North and South, reconciliation between uh, Americans of Vietnamese origin and uh, Vietnamese citizens, uh, a complex reconciliation process, which, <laughs> which I wrote a book about because I think it's so, so fascinating. Thanks. Um, I, I, I did want to, to, focus on the economic piece for a bit but before okay. I do I'd actually like to to pick up on this last part about the about the reconciliation because it seems like there must be a lot in there and you mentioned you know just in passing uh, all different kinds of stakeholders that that are involved are there any um you know any anecdotes from the book or from your experience that that you think are particularly worth telling because I think it's a it's a pretty amazing process that um, to to go through. Yeah, I mean, part of my book is set in Bien Hoa because it turns out to be very important. 
Um, there's a cemetery in Bien Hoa, which where Southern soldiers are buried. And when I first went to Vietnam, I was told, um, well, they're never going to allow those those soldiers to be treated honorably. And and this was a really a sticking point for Americans of Vietnamese origin. Uh, it's very important in Vietnamese culture that you treat the dead with respect. Otherwise, th their souls wander the earth forever. And so you make sure that you bury the dead properly, show respect to them, uh, visit their graves. Uh, it's it's very important. And it doesn't matter whether you're Northern or Southern, this is a Vietnamese uh, tradition. But in Bien Hoa, the graves were floating away and there were tree roots uh, going through them. And it was very troubling to a lot of Vietnamese Americans. And first I didn't get it. Um, but then I, I hosted Drew Faust, who was the president of Harvard at the time. And she wrote a book about the Civil War and about reconciliation after our Civil War and about the significance of graveyards. And so she we we talked and she, she said, Ted, you got to stop talking about the dead, like with a capital T and a capital D. Refer when you're discussing this issue, refer to the fact that these are people who died and don't make it about politics. And so I went to the government and I said, look, this is not about politics, not ideology, not flags. It's about people who died and honoring them properly. And all we want to do is America, uh, Vietnamese Americans want to be able to cut tree roots and dig ditches so that the graves don't aren't desecrated. And folks in Hanoi said, oh, that'll be very difficult. And so I went to uh, Bien Hoa and I went to the and saw the People's Committee chairman of Binzong province. And I said, it's not about politics. It's about ditches and tree roots. That's it. It's really simple. And he said, oh, I think this could be very difficult. But they two months later, they allowed it to happen. They allowed ditches to be dug and tree roots to be cut. And it was just quiet, not political. Honor was restored. And those little things, steps like that, where respect is shown by two sides are tremendously important. We know from our own civil war that reconciliation takes a long time. And every step that shows respect and that allows people to be treated with dignity is important in that process. Thank you so much for sharing that. Um, I, yeah, it's a it's a part of the relationship that I hadn't hadn't considered. So re really appreciate it. Um, turning back now to to this partnership, um, yes. could we just zoom in a little bit on some of the economic and um, you know technology driven economic growth because that I think was a specific part of Biden's visit yes. and. Um, you mentioned, I think, uh, semiconductors, but I'd love if you could just dig into a, a little bit more some of the specific initiatives that exemplify these deepening economic cooperation between the U.S. and Vietnam and what impact you see that happen having. Sure. Well, when they created this newly upgraded partnership, um, there was a specific identification of science, technology, innovation and digital cooperation as new breakthroughs in the relationship. And, and Vietnam is a country with tremendous talent in this area. There are a lot of young Vietnamese who are really good at art, dealing with artificial intelligence. And, and it's a fast growing 
digital economy. It's one of the fastest growing digital economies in the world. Uh, it's been, uh, I think Google and Tomasek uh, put together a report that kind of showed the, the projections. It's expected to reach, uh, the, the digital economy is expected to reach uh, 200 billion by 2030. That's a really big part of Vietnam's GDP. And in recent years, I've I've been I continue to go back in my current job. In recent years, there's been kind of transformation in the way this digital economy is thought about, and the aspirations that Vietnam has for the growth of the digital economy are very, very high. Uh, the The digital infrastructure is already widespread, but it's been improving. Internet population is big, but now we're talking about 88% of Vietnam's 100 million people have access to the internet. And COVID, like it did in many countries, accelerated this transformation to, to a digital economy uh, because people were stuck at home, they had to buy things online. And then once they went online, they didn't wanna go off, they stayed online. So now e-commerce is a big thing, digital payments, really big thing in Vietnam. In fact, they're way ahead of the United States when it comes to digital payments. And now I think they can the the stats show that 80% of Vietnam's population is is consider they consider themselves digital consumers. And so the the partnership focused on this idea of taking advantage of these aspirations. And the United States is is supporting Vietnam's development of its high-tech workforce, uh, supporting enhanced digital infrastructure, and then it, um, uh, speeding up the development of the semiconductor industry so that Vietnam can be part of that high value supply chain. And some companies like Intel were already there, but the they were doing uh, kind of simple, simple steps. And now it's getting more and more complicated. What Vietnamese engineers and uh, you know talented Vietnamese innovators can be involved in in that high tech supply chain. Uh, we're in fact our council, the U.S. ASEAN Business Council that I run, is is organizing our first digital economy mission to Vietnam uh, next week, and a lot of companies are are joining. and And I'll tell you, it was a big part of the mission that I led last year. The focus on on digital. Uh, the idea is to unlock the potential of digital innovation and economic growth uh, driven by technology. Uh, so I think it's a dynamic space, really interesting, and I think was greatly enhanced by this, this new comprehensive strategic partnership. Great. Thank you. Um, and, and obviously, this uh, upgraded comprehensive strategic partnership does not exist in a vacuum. Um, right. So with these deepening ties between the U.S. and Vietnam, um, the the sort of elephant in the room is China. Um, yes. What are the geopolitical implications of this partnership and how might Vietnam's role evolve in the broader regional power dynamics between the U.S., Vietnam, China and, and other countries? Well, it's been evolving. Uh, when I first went to Vietnam 30 years ago, its diplomacy was not terribly sophisticated. Uh, the country hadn't been open really to the rest of the world. Um, and that has changed dramatically. Vietnam's diplomats 
are, I think, the best in the region. Uh, Vietnam uh, now is really the kind of strategic driver of ASEAN, the Association of Southeast Asian Nations. The Vietnamese tend to be low-key about their diplomacy. They don't get a lot of headlines or draw attention to themselves, but they've become the behind-the-scenes leader of Southeast Asia, and their diplomats are very effective and uh, very sophisticated. Part of what's changed in the last, uh, I guess since about 2011, is that in the region there's there's a lot of focus on Chinese bullying. I think that's the best word for it in the South China Sea, or what the Vietnamese call Bien Dong, the East, yeah. the East Sea. Um, and the Chinese got more and more aggressive. Just before I became ambassador, they sent an oil rig into Vietnam's uh, exclusive economic zone. There were protests all over the South. Chinese factories were burned. And anything that had an American flag, people let it go by and were supportive and respectful. Um, this is because, and, and I think this is very important to understand, the Vietnamese have fought 22 wars against China. The war with us, the war with France, those were kind of afterthoughts. The, the, the fighting for millennia that Vietnam has done to, to uh, establish its independence, its autonomy, has always been with China. And every city, village in Vietnam has a, a Ba Chiu Street or Hai Ba Chung Street or, uh, you know, the, these are they're named after heroes, all of whom fought the Chinese. Maybe there's a General Zap Street somewhere, but you know, it's not the people who fought the United States. The national heroes are people who fought China. And the last war of the 22 wars, the last one was from 1979 to 1992. That's not that long ago. Thousands of people died every year and in the north along the border with China. In fact, it was the last war that, that China has fought. And I think it is in the DNA of every Vietnamese person to resist foreign domination, especially by China. And um, so you might ask, well, then how did we end up talking about, uh, you know, domino theory? Well, <laughs> it was, we blew it. Uh, the The people who could have, actually educated our presidents on Asian history had all been driven out of the State Department by Joe McCarthy. And the these decisions were made with very little understanding of the actual historic context of Vietnam-China relations. Um, and then in modern day, and especially in the time since I've been engaged with Vietnam, there's been a growing, uh, there's been a growing collaboration in the security field between the United States and Vietnam. Um, we're far away. We don't threaten Vietnam uh, in any near, uh, you know, near-term way. Uh, but the Vietnamese can't move too fast in their relationship with us because Chinese are still up there. That big long border is still, uh, is, you know, they're, they're like, I guess the way Mexico must look at us. I mean, they're the 800 pound gorilla on the Northern border. And the Vietnamese know that China can cause a great deal of pain, inflict a great deal of pain. And so they're careful to always calibrate their moves, be respectful to China and not move too fast with the United States.
All right. Terrific. Um, there, yeah, I feel like there's, there's a lot to dig into there and hopefully you can okay. get, given your role, um, with ASEAN at the moment, if you could, uh, just dig more specifically into Vietnam's role within ASEAN. I know you said that they're really taking on a leadership role, um, but um, I'd love to hear a little bit more about, you know, how how their own you know, multilateral diplomacy within that grouping is evolving, and you know what role they're playing and why. One of the ironies in my current position, um, I'll hear from like the Indonesians and the Thais who resent all the attention that Vietnam's getting, mm-hmm. you know, they, they, Vietnam is seen as the, as the, the one to beat. That was not the way it was 30 years ago um, when Vietnam was one of the poorest countries in Asia, but now it's clearly on the rise and, and business is paying a big, a lot of attention, but on the security side, which I think also matters uh, when it comes to ASEAN, the, the, the block is divided. Uh, on South China Sea, there are countries that care a great deal about South China Sea, including Vietnam and the Philippines. And then there are countries like Myanmar and and the land-based ASEAN countries that aren't really interested in South China Sea. And so there's kind of a spectrum when it comes to dealing with China. Uh, I would say on one end of the spectrum, um, there's Philippines, our traditional ally, uh Vietnam, Singapore, which is kind of like an ally with the United States, but they tend to uh, be very friendly to the U.S. Um, Singaporeans are equivocal a lot of times, but that there's kind of that end of the spectrum that I would say, especially uh, look at Philippines and Vietnam, who tend to be pretty strong in their in their approach to China, uh, and then in the in the middle of uh, Thailand. Malaysia, Indonesia, Brunei, or somewhere. They, they're trying to balance and have good relations with both the United States and, and with China. And then on the other end of the spectrum, you got Laos, uh, Cambodia, which is really in the pocket of the Chinese, and Myanmar, um, which is also pretty much dominated uh, by China. They they tend to lean towards China and they're and you know they tend to vote the way the Chinese tell them to vote in the UN, and and they um, when there's differences within ASEAN, they tend to uh, follow the Chinese lead. All, every single ASEAN nation wants the United States and China to get along. I mean, they they want to balance those relations. Um, but there's a saying in Southeast Asia: um, when the elephants fight, the grass gets trampled. And those smaller countries do not want to get trampled. There's another saying, which is when the elephants make love, the grass gets trampled. So they also don't want the United States and China to like form a G2 and be too close. But no one's worried about that right now. They do worry about the possibility of conflict. All right. Those are some great, uh, great sayings. Um, one final question. Just um, I'd love to return to your book because I, I love the story that that you shared before. Um I'd, if you wouldn't mind just sharing some key insights from the book, particularly um, on some of the tools used or behaviors needed to reconcile these two former enemies um, and how you believe your experiences contributed to a deeper understanding of the diplomatic processes and, and really the role of personal connections in international relations. Well, I've been told that the word respect uh, appears in my book a lot. Uh, that's not an accident. I actually think 
respect is really important. And when Americans show respect, I mean, we cast a long shadow. When we're arrogant, we don't get much out of it, I think. When we show respect, everything's possible. So uh, I tried to show respect by speaking the language and understanding the history as best I could and respecting the the music and the literature and the culture, um, respecting the, the historic traditions. I feel like respect uh, gets you everything. Everything becomes possible. And when you're disrespectful, you know, that's all people hear. So I think respect leads to trust and trust once you start doing things together and building trust the momentum of trust can lead you to partnership so those that's the i would say if i had to boil down what i learned as a diplomat in three decades it's if you show respect you can build trust if you do things together and build more trust you can develop a partnership and that's good for the united states it's good for our our friends and allies too, but it's really good for the United States when we can, when we can do that. And I guess um, along those lines, I would point to the again what I mentioned earlier was the most significant thing I did. I, I brought the General Secretary of the Communist Party to Washington D.C. He went to the Oval Office with Barack Obama. They they had a meeting that changed history, I believe. In the relationship between our two countries uh, over the last 20 years. Because the President of the United States showed respect to the General Secretary. And from that moment on, the relationship took off in every direction. And there were certainly people who criticized the fact that the, the President hosted the General Secretary of the Communist Party. But I'm convinced it was the right thing to do if we wanted to have a, uh, a partner, a meaningful partnership with the nation of Vietnam. And, you know, for me, I, I don't think you have to fake the respect. You look at what Vietnam has done in its history. Vietnamese deserve our respect. And I'm really glad that uh, President Obama was able to show it. President Biden has shown it. Um, there was a president in between who wasn't so good at respect, but uh, I think you know what I mean. It, it really matters when you when you show respect to uh, friends and allies, potential friends, potential partners. It's listeners like you who make Global Insights so special. Thank you for listening. To stay connected, deepen your insights, and join our community, visit network2020.org.